you're listening to That'll Preach. We've got a great episode for you today. We have on our show Dr. James Strasberg. He is an associate professor of history at Hillsdale College. Uh, he uh, teaches a variety of classes. He teaches both the Western American Heritage Core courses, as well as upper-level surveys in 20th century uh, U.S. history, history of Christianity, and he focuses on political, religious, and diplomatic history as well. So he's got a lot of stuff that he's researching and studying, and uh, we're looking forward to having a conversation today. James, thanks for joining us. Well, thank you so much for having me on here, Brian. It's a pleasure to be with you. Well, we have you here because my co-host, Paul, who's not with us here, he suggested that you come on the show. He said you're a really great conversationalist and enjoyed many uh, talks with you, uh, late night talks, uh, talking about philosophy and history and all these types of things when he was up there at Hillsdale with you. So I'm excited to get to talk and converse with you. One of the things that he told me that I should ask you about is the relation between uh, American history and eschatology or how sort of the unique story of American eschatology, eschatology, you know, the study of the end times and all this stuff. And uh, we were talking earlier about how I, I didn't grow up in a Christian home. So I, I missed all the fun times with the Left Behind series and the Kirk Cameron movies and all these types of things and the eschatological fervor that kind of erupted uh, in, 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 in America. Um, so I kind of found out about that on the back end. But it sounded yeah. like a really fun time. But turns out that the the relationship between America and sort of this focus on eschatology is is, is pretty fascinating. And uh, we'd love to hear you talk about that. But just to start off, what got you interested on this topic of American history and eschatology? Yeah, yeah, great question. I appreciate that. And yeah, I think growing up kind of on the periphery of my life, I was aware of some of these pop culture manifestations of premillennialism in particular. You mentioned the Left Behind series perhaps being one of the best examples of that. Uh, but I grew up in Lutheranism, the Lutheran tradition, uh, which isn't historically a very millennial tradition. And so it really wasn't until I started my PhD research, just getting into my dissertation. And I was trying to answer this question of the ways in which American Protestants shaped diplomacy from the 1910s into the 1950s, right? So I was really interested in this era of the world wars and how American Protestants made sense of their loyalties to the state, to the church especially as when we went through these cataclysmic moments. And it's within that context of that research that I really began to see the ways in which millennialism, which is this very specific reading of the end times and what's going to happen with the end times, uh, really shaped the ways in which these different Protestant groups thought about uh, the First World War, thought about something like the League of Nations, thought about the Second World War, the rise of fascist regimes, communist regimes. And that just kind of started a, a longer exploration into the role that millennialism has played within the Protestant experience in American history, but then just more broadly in American history itself. I think in some respects, um, you could make the argument that 
the American experiment in some ways is a millennial experiment shaped strongly by ideas of millennium, expectations of what that actually will entail. Um, so it really kind of drew me down a, a rabbit hole into research and, and thinking more about the role that this theological idea played in shaping different episodes in the American story. Where would you say that the story begins in terms of America really starting to you know, take hold of an eschatology or like, if you, if you want to have like a timeline, like where do we start with this kind of fascination? Yeah. a uh, great question. I mean, in, in some respects you can go all the way back to uh, the earliest Christian iterations of millennialism. I think you see some important roots and being set in those first 300 to 400 years of church history. Uh, we can dig into that more if if you want but specifically with the american context i think it to a large extent has to do with the waves of protestant religious radicals who crossed the atlantic uh, with a kind of millennial expectation regarding what's going to unfold in this so-called new world. And so the pilgrims and the Puritans, I think, are a great example of this, kind of coming right off of the Protestant Reformation. Uh, you look at the Puritans, for instance, they have a highly developed covenantal theology. They really understand themselves as the new Israel, kind of as a chosen people of God. You see someone like John Winthrop um, in some of his writings where he talks about the Puritan colony as this city set upon a hill, a beacon to England of godly government and true religion. And so there are a lot of expectations, millennial in nature. And so it's, maybe we should just unpack that idea there too, right? The millennium is this foretold 1,000 year period uh, in which general conditions of peace justice, prosperity, and abundance will be known uh, throughout the world. And Christians in particular who are kind of developing millennial theologies, they're turning in particular to Revelation 20. Uh, that's where we specifically see that idea mentioned. And you have everything from literal readings of that. It will be a literal 1,000-year period to more figurative or metaphorical. And more will just be an epic or era of U.S. history or in this specific American context or just history in general where these conditions will generally prevail. Uh, so with the Puritans, right, you do have this millennial expectation, though that what they're going to in part establish is ideally this this uh example of godly government true religion that will be a model to the rest of the world and you see that drawn into by the turn of the 18th century the early 1700s a lot of the revivalistic fervor of so-called first great awakening is tied to this millennial expectation. Um, Cotton Mather, a well-known minister from the turn of that century, authors and delivers this famous sermon 
Theopolis Americana, in which he envisions a God establishing the new Zion in North America, kind of this anticipation of what is to come. And as you look out on all of these revivals that are starting to take place across the British colonies, well, you're starting to get the sense of maybe we are approaching this age of mass conversions. That was often anticipated in the buildup to the millennium. Perhaps it was part of the millennium itself. And it really starts to shape Protestant expectations about what's going to unfold historically and eventually national expectations, what's unfolding here with the founding of the United States of America. So they had this sense that they were sort of on the cusp of this thousand year reign of like righteousness and peace and all these things in Revelation 20. They, they felt like either they were on the cusp of that or perhaps in the beginning phases of it. That was kind of their understanding. Yeah, typically. So within millennialism itself, there are kind of these two overarching camps. There's post-millennialism, which asserts that Christ will return after the millennium, right? So after this 1,000-year period, whether it's literal or it's figurative, after these conditions are established, Christ will return. And typically from the 1700s into the 1800s, early 1900s, post-millennialism tends to be the dominant eschatological approach. And what you start to see here is a lot of emphasis on human agency, that God is engaging human partners to help establish these conditions to carry out the Great Commission, to make disciples across the world, and to establish some of these conditions of peace, justice, good government, good economics. The other school of thought that tends to be dominant, especially throughout the 20th century, is premillennialism. And that's the school of thought that we associate with the Left Behind series in particular. It's a very different reading. Um, it draws a lot on biblical prophecy. And instead of conditions getting progressively better, right, or we're on the cusp of the millennium taking place, or we're actually participating in it, enacting it, kind of manifesting the kingdom of God in the here and now, the premillennial interpretation drawing from biblical prophecy, anticipates that things aren't going to get progressively better. No, we're told that war, famine, general conditions of disorder, the days of Noah, the days of Sodom and Gomorrah, those will be replicated. Hmm. The story will end in one sense, uh, at least this last age that we find ourselves in, will end in human failure. And we can go even deeper in terms of the premillennial timeline, but that's kind of the general posture towards history. And so you might also get a sense of how that might shape mission, missiology, um, attempts at social reform might ultimately be foolhardy when we know that general conditions across the world are just going to get worse. And so what's most important is that we focus on the conversion of souls, right? Because a popular premillennial missiological metaphor is we're on the ship that's going to be saved and we've got the lifeboats 
And our mission should be to try and get as many people as possible on those lifeboats so that they can participate and enjoy the millennial reign of Christ that is implemented after he returns, right? So Christ will return before the millennium and then Christ inaugurates the millennium. So we might also say there's a kind of Christological claim that ultimately Christ is the one who will be doing that work of deliverance. Christ is the one who will be establishing the millennium itself. So there seems to be a long period from the founding of America to you say, you know, toward the 19th, 20th century of a strong kind of post-millennial thinking that Christ is going to come at the end of this glorious kind of period of time and they're building and yeah. they're sitting on the hill, all that stuff. And then there's this shift to a more pessimistic view of history where yeah. they're going, no, it's going to get worse before Christ comes in and then he brings in this millennium of, of, of so basically the good times are ahead. They're not happening now kind of thing. Yeah. What was that shift? How, describe the transition from those. It seems like a big pendulum swing. What, what was the transition like between sure. those two and what caused that? Yeah, great question. Um, I, th I think first off, the world wars loom large. These cataclysmic events, uh, perhaps harder to maintain a narrative of progress when you see these industrial wars claiming tens of millions of lives. World War II claims upward of 80 million lives, I believe, globally. So that dashes some of the post-millennial optimism. But I, th I think even more deeply, it's it in part has to do with your social contextual position, um, your relationship to institutions of power. And we're starting to get then as well into the so-called fundamentalist modernist controversy of the 1910s and the 1920s. Um, this is where quickly going back to perhaps the first 400 years of Christian history might be helpful and informative because I think there are generally two postures that show up in Christian millennial thinking. One is a more anti-imperial, anti-establishment, anti-authoritarian position that we might associate with the book of Revelation to John itself, right? Or in one sense, the revelation John is receiving is uh, for some a symbolic or an allegory, an allegory for what's going to happen to these Christians who are suffering the persecution of the Roman Empire. And it's apocalyptic. God is going to dramatically intervene and reverse the fortune and reverse the direction of history. And God will, through Christ, establish the kingdom that so many anticipated with the life and ministry of Jesus, Jesus of Nazareth. Uh, and so there you have a more critical position being articulated in response to establishments, to institutions, to a political, economic, and even religious institutions. These early Christians are a beleaguered, persecuted minority. They're a sect suffering under waves of persecution from Nero. I mean, 
John in part has Nero in his cross sites there. Uh, and so there's a kind of imminent expectation that we see in that environment. Christ is going to return at any second. History will be reversed and this kingdom will be inaugurated after he returns. Now that also gets at what we might say is the second dominant millennial approach from early Christianity. And that's starting to show up, especially in the 300s, where there's a more cooperative, collaborative relationship being posited between Christians and the Roman Empire. In one sense, like the challenge is Christ hasn't returned. His return isn't hasn't imminently taken place. So what do we do with that? And then there's this whole process, 313 to 380 AD, in which Christianity becomes the official religion of the Roman Empire. It becomes the state's established religion. So there's a kind of church-state establishment posited there. That tends to lend itself towards a kind of Eusebian understanding of the Christian empire being either a vessel of proselytization, peace, progress, order in the known world, or as a kind of safeguard, a kind of obstacle to the forces of the Antichrist, to the forces of evil disorder in the world. That lends itself more towards a kind of Christendom model where there is collaboration between church and state as these major institutions, which also somewhat lends itself to what we see with post-millennialism, right? God is potentially working through the state to establish peace, justice, order in the world. Uh, God is working through church-state establishments. The two come together. And so really at the turn of the 20th century, you have a kind of liberal Protestant modernism that is shaping many of the nation's major research universities, many of the nation's major Protestant denominations. And that's what we mean by when we say it. this is a Protestant establishment that's informally working with the American state. And so it kind of in the 1910s and the 20s with the fundamentalist modernist controversy, you have a major dust up within Protestant churches over what are the currents moving forward theologically, politically, diplomatically that are going to define this establishment. And I think for many of these individuals also define what does it mean to be a Christian nation in this context? Um, now, I echo back to those two models in part because if we look at the roots of not just premillennialism, but a specific kind of premillennialism known as dispensationalism, and we trace that back to someone by the name of John Nelson Darby, who is an Anglo-Irish minister of the Church of Ireland, the Church of England in Ireland, who develops a much more antagonistic relationship towards the England, Anglican church-state establishment in the late 1820s. 
Uh, he starts to envision the church not as a primarily visible institution, but rather as an invisible institution made up of these beleaguered saints. He starts to really focus in on biblical prophecy that he believes foretelling the imminent return of Christ. And then he starts to talk about a so-called tribulation period in which the Antichrist will rule, reign over the world, followed by the battle of Armageddon in the Holy Land that will accompany the establishment of this millennial kingdom. And so the roots of premillennial dispensationalism, which really comes to define fundamentalism and evangelicalism in the 1910s and 1920s moving onward, have more of that kind of antagonistic relationship towards church state establishment, towards these kinds of concentrations of power. So a little bit more of a populist flavor and feel. Um, so I think it's kind of a that crisis moment tied to the Great War and the rise of Protestant modernism that really starts to shift the dominant currents of thought within uh, American Protestantism in particular. So in the early church, there was this, you said there were these two factions, the, the more pre-millennial faction, I guess. Maybe that's anachronistic to read that back in, but. No, I think it's accurate. Yeah, in some ways, the early Christians, uh, the immediate followers of Christ had a pre-millennial disposition. Right. They weren't dispensationalists. That's more of a sure. modern development. But they believed Christ was going to return before the millennium would be established. So they had yeah. this anti kind of established church, church state vibe. And then yeah. Constantine comes in, Christianity becomes the main religion of the Roman Empire. And then you see a more of a we're in it. We're we're in this kind of age. You yeah, know, this is good. And and those two kind of attitudes resurface in the modernist fundamentalist debate, I assume. Is, is are the fundamentalists the ones who are more skeptical of like this church, Protestant church kind of state relationship and the modernists were more for it or what 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 is exactly the split between the fundamentalists and the modernists yeah great question and it might just be worth mentioning here too that there is a third school of thought the so-called amillennial school of thought that's posited by augustine in particular in response to alaric's sack of rome in 410 which really challenges um, the Christian empire millennialism, right? Because how could a good God allow Rome to fall? And so Augustine develops the two-city response. There's the city of God and the city of man. The millennium has already been achieved. We're, we're kind of living in it as members of the city of God. And it's already been achieved in the life, death, and resurrection of Christ. Here in this world, you're gonna, you can expect things like that to happen. Rome's gonna fall because the city of man is ultimately not what's going to endure. The city of God's going to endure, and it's on this heavenly pilgrimage. And so he kind of takes the thunder away from the idea of millennialism itself. It's just this period of time between Christ's first coming and his second coming. And we're not necessarily anticipating any kind of 
uh, utopian order to come. Rather, we're living in it as part of the church itself. So there's that amillennial position as well. But fast forwarding to the 1910s, the 1920s, yeah, I think the major institutions tend to be the modern research university, um, the American state itself, uh, cultural institutions, um, Hollywood, for instance, mass consumerism in the 1920s, the dawn of radio programs, of movies becoming a common cultural pastime of the American people. Who's controlling these major institutions at that time? And the fundamentalist response, it's somewhat complex. I mean, typically we tend to think of fundamentalism as retreating into the background of American life after the public embarrassment of the Scopes trial in 1925. Fundamentalists, uh, they win the case, right? Scopes is found guilty for teaching evolution, but they kind of lose the culture war, some argue. Uh, They become known as kind of backwards, anachronistic, kind of anti-intellectual, plain folk. And they retreat into the background only to make this reappearance with neo-evangelicalism, Christianity Today, Billy Graham in particular, kind of trying to rebrand fundamentalism at that movement. And so, yeah, maybe there's a little bit more of an antagonistic relationship to these major institutions that also might explain why some fundamentalists found Bible institutes. Biola is a great example of that these alternatives to the main Protestant seminaries of the nation. Also more antagonistic relationship to the Wilsonian state. Uh, We see, for instance, Wilson's idea of a league of nations. In one sense, that's kind of like a post-millennial dream, right? We can establish a world government that will help promote conditions of peace and prosperity resolve international conflicts through peaceful means. This is going to be a step in the right direction towards realizing that inbreaking kingdom. Well, for a lot of fundamentalists, drawing from a dispensational reading of the end times, uh, a world government, a major institution, is surely going to be the means or one of the means by which an antichrist establishes rule during the seven-year tribulation period. And the fundamentalist posture is we want to try to hold that off as much as possible so we can maximize the saving of souls, so we can maximize the amount of time that we have to save human beings, to convert them, and to ensure that they will be drawn into this millennial kingdom via Christ's intervention. Um, They're also, in one sense, though, fighting the culture wars. They're trying to win over some of these major institutions, whether that's what's going to be taught in our schools, right? Do we really want evolution taught in our schools? Um, what's going to be the dominant political paradigm? Do we really want a kind of Wilsonian internationalism to shape our foreign policy? Uh, There's also this 
big question surrounding alcohol, temperance, prohibition. So the fundamentalist relationship to established institutions, it is somewhat complex, right? There, generally, it's antagonistic, but there are these concerted ways in which fundamentalists try to use those institutions to enact what they see as a godly Christian national culture where we'll discourage the drinking of alcohol um, in order to try and maximize the saving of souls in advance of Christ's return. Does that kind of help make sense of that moment? Okay. Let's, let's go back to, I'm curious to hear more about how the, how the war, the two world wars really shifted things. Cause it's interesting when you talk about Augustine, you know, Rome falls and that has a significant impact on his eschatology, on his theology. And What's so fascinating hearing you talk is how much of our historical situatedness impacts our reading of the text. It doesn't make it yeah. just fluid and 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 just has no meaning, yeah. but but it, it sort of forces you to go back and maybe see things you missed. Or and it's just very interesting to me. So I'm wondering if you could tease out a little more how the World Wars kind yeah. of affected American psyche. How this Irish clergy guy <laughs> thought? Yeah. How did that? How did that Harvey. pop over? To America yeah. and become really what seems like the dominant view of American evangelicals, sure, or the twentieth, the late twentieth century, the, the yeah. late 20th century. Yeah, great question. Um, yeah, in some ways, the old uh, the story of the the good preacher preaching with the Bible in the one hand and the newspaper in the other hand somewhat rings true for both premillennialists and postmillennialists in the twentieth century. Um, and you might get a sense, right? I mean, both of these millennialisms place their practitioners in a cosmic story and gives them a confidence of where history is headed. And so they're very attentive to what's happening contextually. Um, in fact, right, post-millennialism in the 19th century is tied to many of the great social reform movements. So in one sense, abolitionism, immediatist abolitionism, um, temperance, uh, female suffrage, the right to vote, those are all in one sense post-millennial movements. And so they're reading into the signs of their times and these political developments, the Civil War in one sense, right? Some read that as a post-millennial conflict. It's liberation and emancipation of human persons. Uh, So it's very much contextually attuned, especially then when we get to the Great War. Um, To kind of go back with the premillennialist timeline, the narrative there. So John Nelson Darby, uh, who is kind of the originator of this dispensationalism. And what Darby suggests is that there are seven dispensations of God's dealing with humankind going all the way back to the first dispensation in Eden, working through the time of the flood, leading up to the promises given to Abraham, the covenant given at Sinai, the establishment of the church, and then this millennial age to come. And so for Darby, we're living in the sixth dispensation, the age, the ecclesiastical dispensation in which God is working through the church. But what he asserts is that each of these dispensations, in one sense, ends in human failure. 
And it requires divine intervention to kick off that next dispensation. And that very much fits with his reading of what's going on in the 1820s. He feels that the Anglican church, out of grounds of political expediency, the Anglican church are, is halting his efforts to convert Irish Catholics, to win over converts to the Church of Ireland. And so he defects from the Church of England. He moves away from that institution and he becomes very critical of these church state establishments. Now, eventually that finds its way over to North America. Darby makes multiple trips to Canada and the Great Lakes region of the United States from the 1860s into the 1870s. And he establishes kind of these uh, Darbyite outposts. He helps found this denomination known as the Plymouth Brethren. And so they found these low church, lay-oriented, somewhat charismatic, pre-millennial congregations across the Great Lakes region. And it just so happens that one of the nation's great post-Civil War evangelists, a man by the name of Dwight Moody, uh, runs in Darbyite circles and starts to adopt some of Darby's pre-millennial teachings. And it's at that point that we're starting to have the popularization within American evangelical culture of a more pre-millennial dispensation, or excuse me, a more pre-millennial dispensationalist posture towards history and the end times. There's another crucial mark that really plays a catalyzing role here, and that is the publication in 1909 of the Schofield Reference Bible, which is put together by uh, an evangelical, goes by the name of Cyrus Schofield. And it's unique in two respects. First, it's the first English written Bible or translation translated Bible that is offering alongside the actual scriptural text, marginal commentary, which becomes super common, right? I mean, that's you open up almost any Bible today, chances are it's going to be yeah. a study Bible with commentary. Right, there. Right, right. Scofield starts that. Uh, well, he he brings it back. There were earlier English translated Bibles that had commentary, but it had been quite a time since one had appeared on the scene. He also then starts this practice known as chain referencing. This is the reference Bible. And so this is also quite common in Bibles today. You will see citations, cross-references, to biblical passages that trace a theme or a prophecy across scripture. And so now what we're starting to get is a very systematic, organized approach to reading biblical prophecy, which is somewhat of the approach that John Nelson Darby himself had started to experiment with in his more critical response to the church of England. Now we have a popular national basis for that. And the fundamentalist mentality 
tends to be a little bit more populist, a little bit more removed from the centers of established Protestant and state power. And so maybe there is a, a kind of contextual alignment there. But I think it also somewhat has to do with how fundamentalists are trying to defend sola scriptura in this context. And how do we read the Bible, right? Because liberal Protestant modernism has largely adopt has largely adopted the biblical his, historical critical method of the German research university. And this is seen as potentially diluting central fundamentals crucial to any reading of the Bible, such as the inerrancy of scripture itself. Uh, and so they're trying to defend that reading in response to Protestant modernism. And so a more literal literalist reading of the Bible is uh, becoming much more of a hallmark of fundamentalist identity. And this lends itself quite well to a kind of chain referencing of scriptural passages and a turning to the Bible in a very literal way to try and gain insight of where's history going? Where, where are things headed? And here we have some specific passages in Revelation 20, Daniel 7, that seem to offer a pretty clear cut timeline of what we can expect. And so you really start to see premillennialist interpretation of the Bible in this modern context taking off in the 1910s and 20s in response to the Great War itself. Um, maybe I can just pause there. If you want me to kind of dive into the Great War, the Great War a little bit more, um, feel free to let me know. But if there's any follow-up or thoughts from your end. No, it's just amazing to... how much of American evangelicalism is shaped even by something like the way that study Bibles are so prevalent, you know, just Bible study method, building a really yeah. strong sort of class of lay people who are yeah. are into Bible study and 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 doing word studies and and using yeah. these kinds of tools, even just uh, so it's so even if people aren't explicitly premillennial or dispensational churches today, sure. they're still very much affected by sort of the ethos of, of this movement. It's fascinating to hear about that. Yeah, yeah. I think in today's context, um, although many Protestant churches no longer deliberately practice or preach a kind of premillennial dispensationalism. It has strongly shaped our popular cultural imagination, um, especially with the late great planet Earth, authored by Hal Lindsey, 1970, the Left Behind series. I mean, these are massive commercial successes. Late great planet Earth sells upwards of 30 million copies. Wow. Um, Left Behind, the series sells about 90 million copies. You have pop cultural films left behind Nicolas Cage, Y2K kind of had a end times premillennial feel to it as well. Um, some individuals even point out in the uh, Avengers infinity war. Really? And Thanos right snaps his finger and half of all creaturely life disappears 
it's kind of has a feel of the rapture to it yeah. that there's yeah. going to be sudden disappearance. So this this idea, this fascination with the end times has, I think, powerfully shaped American culture since the 1970s. And so even if you're not in a context where you're explicitly getting premillennial dispensationalist readings of history in the end times, um, you might be being shaped via popular culture to kind of be thinking about where is history going with this kind of inclination. Why don't you uh, keep talking about the effect of the war, World War oh, yeah. I and, and World War II and, and how that sort of, sort of shook things up a little more? Yeah, well, one thing I find really fascinating is that the Augustinian move, which is to kind of decouple the church and decouple historical events from any kind of inbreaking millennial reality, is somewhat made by the Protestant modernists in the 30s and the 40s. Right, because a lot of uh, the rationale for Protestant modernists for why they think the Great War needs to be fought is out of a, a kind of post-millennial optimism that, um, in this case, right, violence, which right, the antithesis of peace. There's a little bit of a paradoxical element to this. Maybe some cognitive dissonance going on. Some post-millennialists are just avowed pacifists. And for this reason, they vehemently deny the possibility that the Great War can somehow be a kind of holy war. This completely goes against what we should expect with the millennium. But most modernists come around to the idea that perhaps God could use the state and war in order to try and bring about a greater good. And in this case, it's uh, advancing a true Christianity, uh, true politics, democracy to the old world, to Europe. So mo many modernists see this as a kind of righteous, progressive crusade that's tied to the Christianization and the democratization of the world. And of course, Wilson himself seems to embody these ideals. So let's make the world safe for democracy. Let's establish the conditions for a global capitalist marketplace. Let's share with them um, true religion that we've helped cultivate and nurtured within our American Protestant context. Now, you would potentially think that the destructiveness of that war, right, 10 million lives claimed these, I mean, it's fascinating, right? J.R.R. Tolkien, he is using the Battle of the Somme and some of these obliterated landscapes as his artistic inspiration for his descriptions of Mordor and mm. the Lord of the Rings series, right? So you might think that the horror of the war itself could lead to a kind of disillusionment and a kind of fracturing of this post-millennial optimism. And there's definitely the potential for that. Uh, but most Protestant modernists see this as a kind of temporary setback and they double down on their efforts to try and create a war 
excuse me, a world without war to kind of establish post-millennial conditions again in the 1920s to strengthen the League of Nations without American formal membership, uh, to carry out evangelization through social uplift campaigns. Um, and so you still see some post-millennial optimism in the 1920s. But it's ultimately someone like Reinhold Niebuhr who starts to make the Augustinian move and much like Augustine reflects on the reality of original sin, especially in relationship to what he sees as these very sinful regimes, Nazi fascism, Soviet communism, these totalitarian regimes that in his reading are crucial then to this second cataclysmic war. And so Niebuhr ultimately develops that school of thought known as Christian realism, which reasserts original sin, questions the effort to try and perfect the human being, and questions whether any kind of millennial kingdom will ever be able to be realized through human agency or even within, you know, within human history and existence. So it's more of an amillennial kind of disposition and posture. Perhaps it's been realized spiritually and in through the church, but temporally we're left with a really mixed bag where good and the privation of good exists alongside. And maybe the best that we can do, Christian realism is positing, is try to carve out of the chaos and disorder of human existence to try and carve out what someone like Niebuhr calls a just and somewhat durable peace and order so that we're not falling back into a brutal state of nature where we're just kind of constantly at war. There's just this, a degree of stability, an inkling of order that we can perhaps establish through the use of force, if and when necessary, that will allow the city of God to continue its kind of earthly pilgrimage. And so Christian realism is widely adopted by Protestant modernists as a way to think about the Second World War. They've largely abandoned their post-millennial optimism by that point in time, and they have a much more sober-minded understanding of human nature, human affairs, that then gets drawn into the Cold War and more or less by that point, post-millennial optimism has lost its staying power as an intellectual or theological force in American history. Now, that also corresponds with a point in the American story where these neo-evangelicals are um, trying to rebrand the fundamentalist movement after the Second World War, right? Because coming out of the Scopes trial, there is this kind of national sense that fundamentalists, they're anti-intellectual, they're prone to a lot of infighting, scrupulous disagreement over doctrinal particulars. They can't really cooperate with one another. And you somewhat see this in the fierce debates that break out within post-millennial camps. You can just do like a quick YouTube search or... Uh, you know, go down rabbit holes on premillennial forms. There's a lot of difference of opinion over how to properly read these scriptural prophecies and difference of opinion, right? If 
the premillennialist is having the Bible in one hand and a newspaper in the other, well, how do we read some of these temporal events? Uh, for instance, like is Mussolini in the 1920s and the rise of Italian fascism, is this a sign of the rise of the Antichrist, who some believe will be at the helm of a reconstituted Roman Empire that the Antichrist will eventually use uh, to take over the world during the seven-year tribulation. What about Hitler? What about Stalin? What role are they all playing? And fundamentalists come to very different conclusions. Um, there's also a lot of disagreement in the 1920s and the 1930s over the place of the Jews in this premillennial dispensational timeline. Uh, Neo-evangelicals are trying to get past that fundamentalist infighting that they feel weakened the movement, trying to present a much more nationally unified, public-facing faith that uh, can kind of command the national center, that can perhaps become the new Protestant establishment moving forward, especially as mainline liberal Protestant modernism is starting to enter into this period of perceived decline in the latter half of the 20th century. So they're not as anti-establishment, the neo-evangelicals, as the fundamentalists are. In fact, they're, they're fine being the establishment, but they still hold a loose premillennial kind of posture. They're, they're still mostly dispensational premillennial in their... Yes. Okay. Yeah, I think someone like Billy Graham, um, part of his revivalist fervor is to invoke the impending apocalyptic right. okay. judgment of God and to speculate on is the Soviet Union somehow part of uh, this foretold tribulation that's going to be this seven-year period of kind of pure tyranny carried out by the Antichrist. So yeah, he's definitely engaging in a kind of pre-millennial speculation regarding current events and what role the Soviet Union might be playing in a Cold War kind of eschatological timeline. And keep in mind, right, I mean, Americans, Europeans, they are wrestling with the specter of nuclear annihilation. Uh, it can be sometimes hard for us to get our heads around that, right? Um, given, I, I mean, I don't know if you just saw Oppenheimer, a really fascinating film that explores the real destructive potential and the precipice that someone like Oppenheimer felt human beings were standing on, right? I mean, we're one step away from the potential destruction of the world. And that feels really imminent in this late sure. 1950s, 1950s context. And so you might be kind of hardwired to think apocalyptically, and you might be kind of drawn to Graham's revivalist message because of some of those premillennial undertones. But yeah, on the whole, I think neo-evangelicalism is trying to adopt a much more forward and open-minded position towards national culture, national establishments of power, whether that's universities or the center of power in Washington, State Department, the White House. 
you know, Graham notoriously, right, is is making visits to American presidents and uh, even is potentially being asked to be Richard Nixon's vice president in uh, some of those 1960s campaigns. So, yeah, there is, I think, um, maybe a little bit more of a post-millennial adoption there of trying to embrace and use central institutions to advance a Christian vision for the American nation and people. Uh, but it's a po- it's a pre-millennial message through and through in terms of eschatology and theology. There's also Israel becoming a state. I mean, that must, that, that, that seems to be oh, a huge yeah. part of it too, right? The- yeah. And um, yeah, we can I'll go all the way back to the rise of Christian Zion, or excuse me, Zionism first and foremost. And then after Zionism as a kind of nationalist movement organized by Jews, Christian Zionism as a kind of accompanying fundamentalist evangelical support. And it's, it's really fascinating because part of the dispensational timeline is that the Jews need to be gathered back in the promised land. And so this idea of the creation of a nation state for the Jewish people really captures the attention of fundamentalists in the 1910s. It's in that decade in the Great War itself that you have the Balfour Declaration announced by the British Empire in which Britain essentially agrees to working towards the creation of a mandate for nation state for European Jews and British Jews in Palestine. And many read that as a clear-cut sign that we are approaching that tribulation period. There's going to be a rapture. The faithful will meet Christ in the heavens. They'll be spared the seven-year tribulation. The Jews will be tested and persecuted by the Antichrist. A faithful remnant will remain and join Christ. They'll ultimately be brought into the kingdom, part of that battle of Armageddon, and will rule with Christ as part of that millennial kingdom. So the Jews and the establishment of an enclave or a state for the Jews really starts to loom large as part of a fundamentalist diplomatic outlook. And that lends itself to Christian Zionism. You somewhat have to um, kind of tip your hat to these fundamentalists contextually because they, many of them are not caught up in the very vile anti-Semitic outlook of the 1920s and the 1930s. They are defenders and protectors of the Jewish people. And so there's this kind of special alliance being forged between fundamentalism slash evangelicalism and Zionism itself. Uh, Many Protestant modernists are articulating either a kind of anti-Judaism in which the suffering of the Jewish people is being merited and warranted by their rejection of the Christ, or just a kind of outright blatant anti-Semitism. Uh, you do see some fundamentalists uh, who are premillennialist, like William Bell Riley, 
Uh, he is crucial to the anti-evolution campaign of the 1920s. He also is a, a pretty vehement anti-Semite. Uh, says some extremely vile things about the Jews that parallel much of the rhetoric of the Nazi fascist regime. Um, and there's this kind of underside on the both modernist and the fundamentalist side that's really intrigued by Nazi fascism because of that very negative posture over against the Jews. Uh, but I think for the most part, fundamentalists tend to see through that and to tend to have much more sympathetic views towards the plight of the Jews expressing solidarity after these bouts of persecution, such as Kristallnacht in 1938. And that lends itself to eventually becoming a pretty strong diplomatic lobby or block for positive U.S.-Israeli relations. Um, even something like Hal Lindsey's The Late Great Planet Earth, uh, he is writing that after the Six-Day War in 1967, in which the nation-state of Israel reestablishes control over the old city of Jerusalem, East Jerusalem, the West Bank, the Golan Heights, the Sinai Peninsula. And for him in the late great planet Earth, that's crucial, right, to this premillennial timeline to really take place. The Jews have to be gathered back in the Holy Land. They need to have control of Jerusalem, and they need to rebuild the temple. And all of those events have to take place in order for the tribulation to really be triggered. And then for the battle of Armageddon, Christ's return, the ushering in of this millennial kingdom, and then the final and last judgment at the end of that 1000 year reign. So, yeah, I mean, Israel looms large in the premillennial dispensationalist timeline. Well, this is a great, I mean, man, a great kind of overhead view of this fascinating topic. I mean, it's amazing how much history and theology kind of intertwine. I mean, yeah. Today, what what do you think the predominant kind of eschatological view is today? What do you see kind of brewing here? Well, it's a, yeah, it's a fascinating question. I mean, typically historians are a little little hesitant to to make too many presents. Uh, or claims about the present or a diagnosis of got to become present. history first and then you can study it. Yeah. I I think my general sense is that overall Protestants have largely become Catholic as far as their millennial outlook goes. They've largely adopted the Augustinian perspective of an amillennialism. Um Perhaps you see with certain social justice inclined flavors of Protestant Christianity, a kind of post-millennial undercurrent. Uh, in one respect, the civil rights movement kind of has a post-millennial feel. So any movements for establishing the conditions of justice in the world often can have a, a post-millennial feel to it. So. Uh, maybe you see that, for instance, most recently in the UAW strike. Um, the union leader of the UAW, Sean Fain, has a very social justice-driven kind of Protestantism behind his 
union organizing, the picket line, and trying to fight for what he sees as a just wage and then fair working hours and conditions for Ford employees, Jeep employees, Stella uh, Chrysler Atlantis employees as well. So maybe there are still signs of that, right? Post-millennialism via a social justice kind of Protestantism that tends to be focused on our mission is tied to social uplift. On the other side, um, the pandemic, the lockdowns, especially as those lockdowns touched upon uh, the freedom of churches to assembly uh, as congregations, concerns about the COVID vaccine uh, triggered perhaps some post or premillennial responses where uh, surely this is a sign of a kind of authoritarian establishment imposing its will upon Christians, uh, either through limiting the freedom of worship or mandating a vaccine. You can very quickly kind of enter into the conspiratorial there as well. And um at times, premillennialism, dispensationalism has lent itself towards a kind of conspiratorial feel regarding who's really pulling the strings of history. These large establishments are kind of orchestrating events, and we as a kind of beleaguered minority are trying to respond. So maybe that's a little bit of a resurgence of that earliest Christian disposition over against the Roman Empire. And there's a reading into the times that um, these authoritarian establishments are persecuting us and we have to be faithful. We have to be faithful in response. I think you see some evidence too that in the aftermath of 9-11, there have been a lot of shifting interpretations of who might the Antichrist be and uh, what kind of geopolitical events might correspond with the rise of the Antichrist, a revived Roman Empire via a Mussolini-led fascist Italy, uh, perhaps the Soviet Union playing a role. After 9-11, you do see somewhat of a shift in some evangelical circles towards this idea that the Antichrist might come from the Middle East, uh, might be somewhat tied to Islam to a more kind of radical fundamentalism within Islam, and that uh, conditions there geopolitically might loom larger in a kind of revised premillennial interpretation than some of these historic interpretations regarding a revived Roman Empire. So I think it's just reminders that uh, millennialism is still very much with us. I think it will always be with us. I th I think we are hardwired as creatures, I think, to um, to wonder about our telos and to wonder about the teleological aim. Where is this all going? Where is this all heading? And it's not just Christianity as a religion that offers these millennial understandings. You can see it in a lot of different religions, a millennial expectation regarding where history is headed.
So I don't think it's, you know, I don't think uh, millennialism is something that's necessarily going to fade. I think it will continue to show itself in some of these different ways that we've reflected on and, and kind of spitballed about here in our last few moments. Well, this is fitting that two millennials are talking about the millennial. Well, there you go too. Yeah. That's how it works. <laughs> but, uh, what role do we play? Yeah. The, I the know. Generation. <laughs> yeah, we're the one, yeah, we ruined everything. Right. But yeah. I, I, so avocado before, toast. Yeah. Watch out. <laughs> yeah. Sign- I know. Right. <laughs> well, the, you know, before we wrap up, I, I want to ask you what, what do you have a particular uh, eschatological view? Oh, that's, I don't know if I, I should show my cards as a historian, but uh, I try to just try to be as fair and impartial as possible. Hopefully your listeners have, have felt that way too. But, um, you know, I, I, I probably find myself most aligning with the amillennial approach that the millennium itself is figurative and representative of what Christ has already accomplished for the church. And that uh, if you're a part of the church, you we're fortunate that we get to experience that and we're being drawn into that. But uh, it's, you know, it's perhaps not something we're ultimately going to witness, experience, or see in its fullness in the here and now. I mean, that said, um, I've run in both post-millennial and pre-millennial circles. Um, and I've seen the ways in which those theologies really provide compelling orientation regarding our telos. So I think I've personally felt the pull of both the post-millennial approach, which emphasizes human agency, divine human cooperation, and this urgency around uh, Christians are called to address social injustice. Um, We're called to, yes, care for the soul and care about the ultimate destination of the soul. I think overall Protestant Christianity in the United States has gone in that direction of a more holistic kind of evangelism, care for both the soul, the mind, the heart, and the body, be attentive to social, to economic realities as well. Um, And that wasn't always the case, right? I think historically, fundamentalism and evangelicalism tended to focus more on the conversionary aspect at the level of the soul. And over the last 30 to 50 years, you've seen a lot more emphasis on social mission uh, showing up within evangelical circles. Um, Yeah, but, you know, I've also been uh, been in those left behind circles. Uh, I have many dear friends who grew up in pre-millennial context. Uh, One of my close friends, you know, would tell me the story of... uh, him being at the a gas station with his dad and his dad left the car running, ran inside to get a few things and got caught up in a conversation in the gas station. And it took a while for him to come back. And my friend was literally afraid that the rapture it happened. Yeah, had taken it happened. place and he hadn't been drawn up into the heavens right. with his dad. And so, um, 
I think that was probably a little bit more of a traumatic experience for him that he later had to unpack. But, um, you know, I think a premillennial reading places us in that cosmic unfolding of God's work in the world as well and gives us a teleological orientation and a lot of hope and confidence regarding where we're uh, where we're potentially headed. And so I think maybe my heart in all of it is that uh, maybe it's the ecumenical impulse that maybe this is adiaphora. Maybe it's something that we as Christians can potentially disagree on. And um, it isn't detrimental to our shared work in advancing the gospel, right? Preaching the gospel in the world. And ideally we can come together despite our potential eschatological differences. Um, but, you know, those differences can potentially be serious and can lead to very different missiology. So I don't think we should neglect the careful study sure. of them and wrestling with, well, what are the ramifications of them? So hopefully that's not too much of a cop-out answer. <laughs> now, so you, you're, you're a millennial and you're a millennial. You're both of those. You're a millennial. Yes, there you go. And I'm like, I, see, I, I got it. Okay. Well, yeah, thank you. As, as a millennial, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, thank really you for, for sharing all those thoughts and giving us a great history. And man, it's amazing. I mean, even if you don't have a millennial position, you're affected by the millennial positions that have kind of been part of the, the history of our nation, which is fascinating in ways yeah. that maybe you're not even aware of. And uh, but you're right. We all kind of have to have some kind of narrative or, or idea of where things are going. It gives us a sense of meaning and and a sense of place in, in history. And it's just yeah. a fascinating discussion. Yeah, I think whether we like it or not, we can't escape history's claims on us. Um, yeah, we live in a world shaped by past actors, and uh, yeah, whether we like it or not, we can't escape uh, the way that millennialism has shaped the past, and the way that it still commands our attention in part, our imagination in part to this day. So, yeah, hopefully that's a call for rigorous historical study. <laughs> there you go, James. Thank you for joining us on the show and sharing all this with us. I think our, our listeners are going to find it really interesting. And really helpful. Appreciate your work on this topic and, and for joining us today. Yeah, thanks so much for having me, Brian. Really appreciated your thoughtful questions and just the opportunity to engage with you in dialogue over this. So thanks for the invite. Absolutely. Uh, if you guys are interested, uh, make sure that you check out the show notes. We're going to have some links to some of uh, Dr. Strasburg's works. Uh, also, make sure you subscribe to this podcast. We're on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. And uh, make sure you share this with your friends. You can follow us on Instagram at That'll Preach Podcast. And uh, just get the word out. Hopefully we can continue more of these conversations and hopefully you guys continue to benefit from them. That's it for today. We will see you guys next week.